morning and happy Monday. Uh, we hope that you uh, had a very nice weekend with your mothers. It was Mother's Day, so if you forgot, it's not, well, it is too late to send a card. But maybe if you get her something super nice, she'll forgive you. Uh, so welcome again to the Northern Miner Podcast. This is episode 11, I believe. Um, as uh, any of our loyal listeners will know, uh, Leslie is out of town this week, so this is the macho. Um, <clears throat> so I hope you uh, you do like uh, a little bit of extra mat in your coffee on your Monday mornings. Uh, <laughs> but we do have a very uh, special uh, guest coming up uh, this week, and that's Trish Saywell, our senior staff writer from Toronto. Uh, she'll be calling in a little bit later in the show, and we're going to really dig into Argentina because Trish... Uh, has recently been down uh, down that way and uh, did a lot of work on uh, the political situation, uh, the changing uh, foreign investment landscape, um, and did some cool interviews and talked to some of the political figures down there. So we'll have some insight on uh, where we think investment in Argentina is going, are there opportunities, what the timeline's looking like, uh, all sorts of fun stuff like that. But as per usual, we will start off the week with our uh, macroeconomic uh, roundup. So we'll take a look at commodity prices, some of the stuff that happened uh, globally that might have impacted gold, oil, etc. Uh, so yeah, let's get started here. Um, so yeah, gold uh, gold's hanging in there. We I think we we're up around 1300 last week. We are down a little bit. Uh, there has been a resurgence in the U.S. dollar, so resurgence in the U.S. dollar. Uh, so it's down at 1267 dollars and 25 cents at the time I walked into studio. Uh, meanwhile, uh, crude oil is up a little bit. We did hear a changing of the guard in the Saudi oil regime. We'll see how that impacts it. But right now, uh, West Texas Intermediate is trading at $44 and five cents a barrel. Um, and the bad news for the week. <laughs> it seems like when we talk about Dr. Copper recently, it can be either okay news or bad news. So Copper's had a little bit of a rough run over the last six months or so. We all know that. Uh, we've talked about it and how it's had a trouble breaking up towards that $2.30 a pound range. Um, but it's got, it just ha- has been pummeled over the last, uh, I'd say probably 72 hours. Uh, I am recording this on Monday. We're going to get Trish in. So our schedule is changing up a little bit. But uh, as of right now, it is at $2.11 a pound, and that's down from about two thirty last week. So why is that happening, you ask? Um, well, the Chinese trade data that uh, came out uh, on Saturday, I believe, so markets weren't open, um, but uh, it was way weaker than expected um, and sort of uh, drove risk-off sentiment, as the analysts call it. Uh, so in China, exports fell by 1.8% year-on-year uh, versus expectations of a flat sort of situation, uh, following an 11.5% increase in March, uh, while imports fell by 10.9% versus an expectation of 4% um, after a 7.6% decline in March. So taken all together, uh, the weak import numbers and everything, it, it sort of suggests that the recent improvement in domestic demand might be losing momentum. Uh, so we have a problem there with, uh, as we know, base metals. Um, I did actually receive a good report from RBC Capital Markets recently that looks at uh, more so diversified metals and minings, but they sort of use iron ore as an early benchmark. And what they see is a three to six month opportunity, though they do throw around the dreaded 2008-2009 comparison where we sort of have what appears to be a recovery that later relapses into another pretty 
let's say, relatively grim situation. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, what, what RBC had been telling me is uh, they do compare the Chinese industrial cover to the one from 2009, um, and the, anal the analysis suggests higher debt levels, worse starting inventory levels, uh, especially in property, and divergent medium-term global monetary policy. All these things will, will cap a recovery, uh, basically. So what we're looking at is, is hey, there's, <laughs> as we've seen, a chance to make money in, uh, in uh, diversified mining shares over the next three to six months. But a lot of analysts are saying the same thing, and this is, again, RBC, but that uh, you want to be careful over the, <clears throat> let's say, uh, not necessarily medium term, but uh, past that, you know, six to 12 month mark. Things are a little cloudy there, so do do watch out. The other thing I guess we'll do this week, because uh, um, I'm flying solo here, so see how that goes. We'll run over some of the uh, the more recent headlines that have come across my desk that might be of interest to everybody, just so that we uh, kind of have a wrap-up of where we might be headed this week. Uh, one of the things everybody knows I've been I've been covering fairly, for a very long time, well, not a very long time, but a reasonably amount of time, I've been covering this Tosico Raging River proxy thing, and we always laugh about it, because they, they have been uh, sending, you know, fairly inflammatory <laughs> press releases out on a regular basis. So we have been looking at it, and uh, the breaking news on this is that uh, Tosico has effectively won. Um, the proxy contest, Raging River, has uh, withdrawn. Uh, sh uh, shareholders have uh, agreed to support the the current board. So uh, the Raging River Tosico thing has resolved itself. Um, <laughs> Tosico put out a, a very, uh, uh, what would be the, the correct adjective here? Uh, proud press release, or or uh, I wouldn't want to call it, you know, uh, pumping the tires or anything. But it, it, they were they were fairly happy with the situation. Let's put it that way. So um, Raging River publicly withdrew its meeting request. Uh, it was scheduled for May tenth, so we broke uh, just before the deadline here. Um, and uh, Tosico just notes throughout the proxy contest, Raging River claimed they had overwhelming support from shareholders. Uh, but what ended up happening was that. Uh, uh, as of May 6, over 50% of Tosico shareholders voted yellow proxy, with over 94% of the shares voting against Raging River's proposals. So, in the end, I mean, this is, in retrospect, it, it might be funny, because we might be looking at something that's similar. If anyone recalls the fission proxy battle, uh, let's be let's be clear, though, that one was, was a lot, had a lot less funding, and the gentlemen behind and ladies behind it were not as uh, accomplished, let's say, in the business. So so this one's different, but again, um, the proxy, the challenger got hammered. Uh, you know, Tosico notes that, and we noted this when we started covering it, that one of the things that Raging River was claiming is, that, oh, the share price is down, but it's like, oh, well, copper is at like two bucks, and like, you know, everybody's share price sucks. So to, to you know, point a, a finger, you know, more solely at Tosico's management versus a a copper major whose shares are underperforming, you know, a peer. Um, you know, I, I guess that did not resonate with shareholders. Uh, Raging River, as we discussed last week, had held a town hall type conference call where they like laid everything out, their technical plan, how they like wanted to rejuvenate uh, Indigenous affairs with the new Prosperity Project, which is uh, in in uh, BC, and they wanted to. Um, wanted to see go to stop suing the federal government uh so they laid everything out but apparently none of that really mattered so they didn't uh that made no waves really so uh note to everybody the Tosico thing is wrapped up uh Tosico wins uh we'll see what happens with the raging river guys probably not much uh but anyway um 
So the other breaking news we just got across the wire is that Freeport McMorin is going to sell 50% interest in its tanky mine in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Now, if everyone knows, uh, Freeport owns this alongside Lundin Mining. Uh, so they're going to sell their 56% interest to China Molybdenum for $2.65 billion in cash. Um, so we'll we'll actually dig into this more in depth next week because I'm actually writing it today. But this is breaking news. So interesting. Uh, some of the questions that have been raised by analysts following this deal where Freeport's uh, essentially just didn't want exposure to the DRC anymore, which is interesting because we talk about um, the Kamoa thing that Ivanhoe has uh, and the Kapushi thing, which I covered last week, Big Zinc and all that stuff. And it's interesting that Freeport was always kind of seen as a bellwether where you know, they could operate there. They're really uh, experienced at, at, you know, operating in, you know, um, less than stellar jurisdictions, let's say. So the fact Freeport's out and they got quite a bit of cash. China Molybdenum's coming in. China Molly, we'll call them from now on. Um, but yeah, so the big question that we've been hearing is what the heck's Lundin Mining going to do? Uh, now that they own, um, you know, their slice of it, but um, they had always, uh, I think enjoyed a bit of a advantage that Freeport was the operator because Freeport was always viewed sort of as sign of the big gun that would take care of everything. So now their majority partner is China Molly. So the question now, and, and a lot of uh, analysts have noted this, is that Lundin's been also been trying to limit their exposure to the DRC. Um, they uh, picked up the Eagle deposit uh, in the U.S. last year. They've uh, picked up Candelaria. So they've uh, they've sort of been, and they attempted to pick up Timok, right? So in Serbia, we, we discussed that last week. Um, so they've been kind of been sort of attempting to diversify their geo geopolitical risk away from the DRC as far as copper is concerned, base metals, etc. Um, so it'll be interesting to see moving forward here what Lundin does with its tanky stake. So we'll keep our eye on that. I'm going to write that up this week. So please do uh, check that out. Um, it'll probably be up digitally today, so you can surf by our website a bit later. I'll have that up. Um, but also, again, once again, we'll remind you... Uh, if you do enjoy the podcast and if you do uh, like our content, please surf by the website. Check out our subscription section. It is uh, really affordable. Uh, it's great. You get access to our Mines Handbook, which is like uh, a really um, in-depth database of mining companies, where the properties are, what state they're at, um, ownership contacts, all that kind of stuff. So that's really cool. Um, and also you get a copy of the paper and your web uh, access. And like I said, we're doing a lot of cool stuff. Uh, there's a podcast coming out. You can check out our data journalism piece I just put out, which... Uh, tracks Canadian private placements for the last 18 months. So it's a cool little graph thing. Please do check that out. Um, but yeah, so uh, without further ado, uh, we did run over a little bit of news here. So let's uh, let's tap Trish in. So we'll, uh, we'll do our little uh, codex into Toronto here and uh, get Trish on the line and see what she has to say about Argentina. We're uh, live here with our uh, senior staff writer from Toronto, Trish Saywell. Uh, how you doing, Trish? Great, thanks, Matt. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. So Trish is joining us today because she recently. What, when was it exactly, Trish, that you went down to Argentina? Uh, well, Elena Mayer of uh, PwC and I went down there at the end of February oh. with the hope of inter. We we had hoped that we would get interviews with the president, but unfortunately that that didn't happen. But we did meet a lot of uh, lawyers and analysts, and and we met the minister of mines, Daniel Melan, and. So it was a very worthwhile trip. Yeah, yeah. Now, our listeners will be uh, familiar with Elena because we just uh, talked a little bit about the Women Who Rock event uh, that we sponsored oh, okay. at the, CIM, uh, the CIM, I guess, two days ago. 
Um, so okay. our listeners will be uh, familiar with Elena. And then, um, well, before we get into maybe some of the nuts and bolts of the uh, the political situation down there, Trish, and some of your conversations with, um, you know, the representatives and some of the companies, I'll ask the most important question first. Did you get some time to take some vacation down there? <laughs> I did. I had about four days at the end of the trip and uh, went down to Bariloche and... Oh. It was quite beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I, hear, I hear it's gorgeous down there. I've never actually been myself. I've done Chile, but I've never actually had a chance to go to Argentina. Well, next time I'm going to go even further south, you know, because we were fairly high up in, in Patagonia, so in the northern part of it. Oh, my God. It's, it's interesting because some of it looked like Penticton, B.C. Some of it looked like Banff. I mean, yeah, it was gorgeous. Yeah, I've actually heard that from other people who've been in that part of the world that you that some of it's like like Canadian almost like you feel like you're in parts of Canada so um so yeah so really interesting time to be down there I mean um so what we have just so that our our listeners have a bit of background here Argentina it has been sort of in a populist government situation for 15 years I think around with uh, the Christina Kirchner administration um and what happened recently was they went to a more centrist government uh with I think he was the ex-mayor of Buenos Aires is that right that's right. He was he'd served two terms as as the mayor of Buenos Aires. And this is Mauricio Macri. Is that the per- correct pronunciation? I, I believe so. Although okay. I I don't speak great Spanish, but yeah, that's yeah, me, correct. Yeah, me either. So we're we're on equal footing there. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so he's come in and he said he's going to lib- uh, well, liberalize the economy to a degree. Um, earlier in April, uh, Argentina did a massive sixteen and a half billion dollar bond placement to kind of get itself back in the international capital markets. Um, mm-hmm. so, yeah, so Trish, when you were down there, I mean, it, it's always interesting to hear these things in the news and read The Economist and all that stuff, but actually being down there while this is happening, what was sort of the the uh, feedback you got from people, you know, in industry and stuff? Well, basically, everyone's just breathing a huge sigh of relief. I mean, um, Macri is, as you said, a business-oriented, uh, business-oriented centrist leader. Uh, he's got one of the best cabinets I think the country's ever seen with a lot of people with uh, some serious chops, like the Minister of Mines and Energy is, uh, was a former CEO of Shell in Argentina, and the, um, the finance minister used to work at J.P. Morgan and Chase uh, in their currency research unit. So he's got a lot of smart people around him. He's a team builder. And so people are very optimistic. And, and what the overwhelming uh, sentiment was down there was that, you know, in two months, he's done a tremendous amount. In, in the first two months of office, you know, I mean, he's unified the exchange rate. He's removed all restrictions uh, on the purchase of foreign currency. He's, he's reached a deal with the bondholders after 15 years of uh, legal disputes. He's eliminated export duties of between 5 and 10% on uh, precious and base metals. He's trying to, to eliminate the restrictions on imports. Uh, and he's taking steps to sort of trim the subsidies and, and raise tariffs on things like electricity and natural gas, which for for, de- for a long time prevented any investment in the energy business. So I think yeah. uh, everyone's really optimistic. And so was some of the stuff that we hear uh, up here, I mean, there there is obviously anytime you go through a process like this, there's going to be a little bit of austerity and inflation and a little bit of hardship. Was there any, did you catch any concern down there from maybe some more of the working class? <laughs> Um, you know, even even the taxi driver I, I was talking to on one of my trips was saying, you know, it's, it, he's really pleased that someone who knows what he's doing is back in power. I mean, the inflation rate there there are no uh, there's no transparency in the the economics or, or the numbers there, but they think that inflation is like 25 yeah. uh, percent. So he's inherited a real mess, you know, where uh, 
when he came into power, foreign reserves were at a nine-year low. The budget deficit is the largest in three decades. Inflation, as I said, was like more than 20%. And it was locked out of international credit markets. So he's in two months, he's really you know, done a lot. And he's also, I mean, he was, don't forget, he was elected with a very slim majority. So he's got to kind of reach out across the aisle. And, 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 and he, he did that too. I mean, in the first, uh, I think, couple of weeks, he took uh, one of the perilous politicians from the opposition party with him to Davos in Switzerland yeah. as a sign that he's willing to, you know, to build bridges with the opposition. And he knows he also has to do that. Yeah, exactly. And and the the other thing I, I one of the interesting um, people you talked to I think was uh, oh uh, what's his name the um, the South uh, Charles Koppel. He mentioned some interesting stuff just about the nature of Argentinian federalism because it, it, what he said was the that the provinces are quite independent. Yes, it is. It's very like the Canadian system where you've got a pr- provincial government and a federal government. So so yeah, even. So, yeah, I mean, there's a huge, huge hill to climb. I mean, it's not going to be easy. And, and a lot of Argentina is very anti-mining, yeah. and many of the provinces are very anti-mining. So there are only a couple that are, like San Juan, for example, where, you know, mining is maybe 35% of its GDP, but that's the highest it's going to go in Argentina at yeah. this point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they've got a lot of, you know, catching up to do with their neighbors like Chile and Peru. I mean, I think the mining minister said um, mining in Argentina is currently about 1% of GDP, whereas if you look at Chile, it's like 85% plus, right? Well, yeah, exactly. That's an interesting point. And also, you know, you you can't underestimate that mineral potential either, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, everybody, I mean, it's sort of a cliche, but everyone says the same thing. Look, you know, God couldn't have given Chile all of the resources. I mean, (laughs) across the Andes, right? And it's so underexplored. Yeah. Well, that was the interesting thing. I was like, like if you look at at Pasqualama, like Barrick's big thing, it pretty much runs on both sides of the border, right? And I mean, that was one of the interesting questions I was going to ask you. Is do you hear anything about Pascual when you're down there? Not much. Yeah. Uh, what we did hear a lot about was Barrick's Valadero project, oh, yeah. or sorry, mine, which, which had a spill in the fall, so yeah. before we got there. Yeah. And of course, the anti-mining groups got all over that. Barrick says it was a minor spill, but um, you know. Well, but but yeah, and, and things like that, they've got huge challenges. I mean, first of all, to sort of persuade the local population that mining isn't uh, isn't necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. Um, you know, the slim majority he's got. You know, they've they've got huge infrastructure needs in transportation. I mean, basically now things are are, are uh, transported by truck, which is very expensive. A lot of the rail infrastructure, it's interesting, doesn't really link up to each other. So you've got certain gauge <laughs> tracks that don't. Oh. So they've got. A, and now they're even talking about building a tunnel between through the Andes between Chile and Argentina. They've been talking about it for three years or so. Oh, wow. But who knows? You know, maybe, yeah, maybe they'll get that off the ground. The other thing I think I, I read in your Koppel interview was he said that, or or, you, or maybe it was you that asked the question, was that um, the the actual mining legislation in Argentina is not bad, right? It was just that they were not enforcing it correctly during the Kirchner regime, right, during the populist politics stuff. That's exactly right. Uh, they say that their mining code is quite quite uh, progressive. I mean, they protect uh, fiscal stability for 30 years under the mining code. But of course, as you say, you know, the, the, the populist governments have just overridden that uh, and imposed new taxes on top of that. Yeah. Yeah. And so did you get uh, sort of an impression? Because I know one of the other things that we mentioned is they are forming a new ministry uh, to deal with mining and energy. Um, are they going to be taking a look at the current code and coming up with something new or are they just going to be enforcing it well, the people, well, for example, the mines minister, Daniel Melan, says, you know, they don't really need to do anything to the mining investment oh. code. It's, it's perfect as it is. It just requires enforcement and, okay. you know, tweaks here and there. Mm-hmm. 
Like he was talking about setting up a social responsibility fund, for example, which would maybe be, he sort of said, maybe it could be 1% of export taxes or something would go into this fund, which would then be distributed equally amongst provinces because they, they need to... They need to change the debate about mining and, and, and that it can contribute to local economies and so forth. And it, like one of the other things we always – well, I always ask when I talk to somebody who's working in, in sort of an emerging market is, is is indigenous relations down there. Now, in, I know in South America it's, it's very geographically sensitive, like depending on where you are, your project is. What is Arge- – did you hear anything down there about Argentina's indigenous situation and pursuant to development and things like that or – well, well, you know, it's interesting because I, I actually posed that question. I said, I said, well, there really isn't much of an indigenous population. It was pretty much wiped out. And they would say, oh, no, no, we have an indigenous population. But, uh, you know, uh, Argentina is very much uh, populated by uh, European immigrants, right? Okay. So yeah, yeah. The, ind- the indigenous population, if it's there, is very low. It's very low. And it's, it's like also a very... And it's also a very sparsely populated country. I mean, most of the population is in Buenos Aires province around the city of Buenos Aires. So okay. when you get into these other remote places, it's very underpopulated yeah. in general. Okay, okay. That makes sense. So so that's – they. it's interesting to me because that's a little bit like Chile where – Right. Right. Um, Whereas in Peru, of course, it's the opposite, right? You've yeah. got a huge indigenous population. So, yeah, so they're all different countries. So it's interesting. Yeah, very interesting. And the other thing you had a chance to talk to was um, the representatives at NGX, which has the Jose Maria and uh, Los Haledos, I think, are the two deposits they have. So that's interesting. You got to talk to somebody from the junior side uh, who I guess their project kind of half is half and half again, uh, similar to Pasqua. Uh, what is the kind of the feedback on the, you know, the junior side down there and I it, like because Koppel said it's going to take a few years to get going in all likelihood right but there's a few junior guys that have been down there for quite a while well NGX is part of Lundin right yeah 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 yeah, yeah. well we we had a long talk actually the, um their manager um Alfredo we spoke to he was the first guy that we interviewed and and he was frustrated but he's also you know, very, very positive about the prospectivity of the geology and, and just excited to get going again. Um, he says there are certain things that Argentina could do to make it easier on, on foreign mining companies, though, like having a register where they can go online and see which properties have been staked, which ones haven't. Yeah. He says basic things like that still need to be done okay. to improve the to improve the situation for foreign mining companies, because that can be done in, say, Chile, for example, or Peru. Yeah, so it's interesting to see. So, so did you did you, like you, you you subsequent to going to Argentina? You obviously were at PDAC, I think, right? Um, That's did, right. Did you get a chance to talk to anybody who was thinking of investing in Argentina and kind of got a a feedback on, on on companies that might deploy some capital down there? Um, actually, no. To be honest, I wasn't uh, doing much Argentina stuff at PDAC, okay. but um. But I think there is there is interest. Uh, I mean, I think you mentioned something this morning about some mining companies uh, interested in the Endelcolo. I believe there's a tender for a, a, a gold mine that was shut down due to low gold prices. But the, yeah, the company list was Australian predominantly. I noticed that there's quite a. But the uh, the the Aussies are usually early movers. So. <laughs> well, that's interesting. You you raised that point because I was uh, on this project. I was talking to a consultant in Australia who's actually from. Argentina, who was saying in the first two weeks of the election, uh, she had 15 inquiries from different groups of people interested in mining in Argentina, whereas the previous year she had maybe one or two inquiries. Oh. And so, and she's based in Sydney, Australia. So I think she didn't say exactly where those inquiries were coming from, but I'm guessing some of it was from Australia. Yeah, yeah. And the so, other, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And the other thing, you know, I know Rob McEwen has talked a lot about, but he's got, uh, of course, his 49% interest in the San Jose mine and in, in Argentina, and he's also got the Los Azules project. Yep. And on the conference call, this oh, he we, we interviewed him earlier this week, and, and he said for the first time in years, they're investing money in Argentina this year on exploration. Yeah, I think his priority this year is probably getting gold bar going in Nevada and uh He's just purchased some more ground next to the El Gallo mine complex in Mexico. So okay. I don't think he's looking for more in Argentina, but he did say this morning that he's open to, um, uh, you know, acquisitions, potentially a merger of equals, that kind of thing. I so who knows? Oh, I, I know so you, you mentioned McEwen briefly, but um, the other thing I want to ask you, you talked to him a bit about the Almadex deal. And uh, that was interesting to me because I know Morgan uh, Palquin really well uh, with the Almadine group. So I was just wondering, uh, when they picked that up, I mean, um, can you give us a little bit of background on that land package a little bit and, and the McEwen deal there? Well, all I really know about it is that there are six claims, yeah. I think, in total, and they're about 10 kilometers from El Gallo okay. in Sinaloa. Okay. And he's, he really believes that uh, there's potential there to extend the mine life at El Gallo through these these claims. Um so, yeah, it's looking pretty interesting, actually. And and those Almadex uh, was spun out from Almaden, right, yep. In uh, I think last year. So Almaden had that ground uh, since 1996, I think. Yeah, because Dwayne Palaquin's been down there for, like, ever. He's, like, the chairman of Almaden, and they have, like, a lot. Well, like, they kind of brand, brand themselves as a project generator, I guess, so this is kind of in their wheelhouse. But uh, I know they do have a lot of land in Mexico, which a lot of it's not actually being worked, so... I think in this case, from what what I was just reading your article, it sounds like from the junior side, it's just that that um, McEwen will probably put more money and attention into the project than they'd be able to at this point, right? Well, I do know that the properties that he bought are very close to two discoveries, or well, he calls them two satellite mineral resources that he's found in that same area called Twin Domes and Las Milpas. Oh, okay. There, so yeah, he, he's pretty confident. He said he said this morning on the conference call that he wouldn't have bought it if he didn't, didn't think it was a, a good a good buy. Yeah. So. yeah. Yeah, it's no, it's interesting. I always find McEwen um, uh, really an interesting case because um, they've always seemed to be on that edge of hitting that next tier of gold producer, like making it kind of above that that production threshold. But oh, during the recession, they were kind of quiet, right? So it'll be interesting to see uh, see how they emerge here. That gold prices are back up around thirteen hundred bucks. Well, yeah, and he said he was also talking this morning about um, maybe getting into production at the El Gallo silver mine because silver prices are coming back up. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And he yeah. and he and he noted that the silver to gold ratio is shrinking, so it's yeah. gone from about eighty down to about seventy-two, and he thinks it'll get back to the fifty to sixty uh, range. Oh, okay. And and he's and he's still sticking to his uh, gold price target of two thousand this year. Oh wow, that's bullish. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, Tris, I, that that should uh, you know that should do it for today. I think. Thanks again so much for joining us on the show. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Well, that that was awesome. Thanks again so much, uh, Trish Saywell, for joining us from Toronto. Uh, As we move ahead here, we will be more technologically enabled, as I like to put it. So we will do more uh, interviews. Uh, We'll have people phone in. Uh, We want to do some stuff on site. So we'll we'll be working with some cool technology to get uh, a little bit more insight, not only from Leslie and myself, but from the broader mining community. Um, so yeah, without uh, further ado, it's Twitter time. Um, so I will uh, pop off a few tweets this week. Uh, once again, I am here on Monday, so uh, these are going to be more up to date. Uh, so uh, firstly, uh, perhaps most importantly, it is National Mining Week, which runs from May 9th to 16th. 
Um, so we would just like to say thanks to everybody out there. Uh, there's about 400,000 people working in mineral extraction, processing, and manufacturing. Nearly 4,000 businesses in Canada that supply goods and services to our industry. So uh, this is a good week to uh, to say hi to everybody, maybe grab a few beers, uh, <laughs> check it out. So it is National Mining Week uh, running uh, from uh, May 9th to 16th. So uh, probably some cool events in your area, so do check it out. Uh, this is from our friends at mining.com, tweeted this out. Um, uh, Leslie and I had spoken about Gachu Quay, uh, which is the uh, largest new diamond mine that's under development in the world. Um, and this is in the Northwest Territories. I believe it's about 300 kilometers east of Yellowknife. Um, so this is about 94% complete, the construction on this. So they're uh, they're they're getting real close. Um, so just so everybody knows, uh, De Beers is operator uh, as majority owner. Uh, Mountain Province Diamonds hold a 49, holds a 49% stake. So... Um, Interesting stuff. Uh, we had talked in the past about uh, about Kennedy Diamonds, the Kennedy North discovery. Uh, very good news for the Northwest Territories uh, following the closure of Snap Lake uh, and some stuff, uh, you know, the suspension of the McKenzie Liquid Natural Gas Corridor. So good for the uh, Northwest Territories economy. Uh, the mine will um, have a 12-year life and employ about 400 people. So good news. Uh, expected to produce about 4.5 million carats a year. So that's uh, that's an interesting one for us. Um, the other interesting one is we have a little bit of update on the Samarco disaster. We talked about the horrendous tailing dam spill, uh, that had happened, uh, in Brazil. Uh, the co-owners were BHP and Valet. Um, so we just got down the pike. Uh, Mickey Fulp actually tweeted this, so we'll take a look at that. Um, that, uh, BHP is facing a $44 billion lawsuit over Brazil's worst environmental disaster. So we keep, uh, following that one along, uh, federal prosecutors in Brazil filed this 40, it's roughly $44 billion civil lawsuit, um, against, uh, Samarco and Valet and BHP, uh, for the collapsed tailings dam that happened in November, um, unfortunately killed 19 people. And, and we've all seen the pictures was just, was fairly, was absolutely horrendous. So, uh, following that along, so the, uh, court proceedings have, uh, have taken another step forward there. Um, and yeah, I, uh, always like to get my, my technology and innovation ones in. So, uh, PwC has a drone department, which I didn't even know that that's kind of awesome PwC. Um, but anyway, machine market tweeted that, uh, PwC drone, you can actually follow PwC's like drone division. I guess that's what it is. Anyways, it's on Twitter at PwC drone. If you're like really into drones. Um, so PwC drone predicts drones to impact 49 and a half billion dollars infrastructure and construction in, in the mining sector. So they're just looking at, uh, uh, the commercialization of drone usage in sectors from constructions to insurance could lead to the disruption of 125 billion in traditional industries. So interesting stuff. Uh, we always we hear about drones. The government's having a huge problem because like all the kids have drones and they're in the park crashing them into birds. And I actually <laughs> I saw this awesome thing on TV where the I don't know if it was the RCMP, but they were training freaking eagles to take out like rogue drones that they didn't want around, and these eagles would just like bomb and just like just wreck this drone it was awesome i would youtube that that is some cool stuff uh anyway so yeah it's solo macho so i won't keep you too long here but uh thanks again for joining us this week uh leslie will be back next week so we'll have a great show um so uh everybody yeah enjoy uh enjoy your monday and uh we'll talk to you next week thanks again